And we want to invite you, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, don't be afraid of the table of contents if this is your first time holding a Bible. Uh, we want you to take that home with you as our gift to you if you don't own one. Uh, we want to hand out this as many, uh, as many of these as possible, even though I just read a couple weeks ago, Pew Research did, uh, and somewhere between the, the average household in America owns like four Bibles. So if you own four Bibles that are covering dust, that's not, stop stealing our Bibles. Um, but if you know someone who's not, who, who brings that average down, who doesn't own a Bible, man, this is our gift. We want to put that into your hands. And this is a, a practice by which we're shaped by God speaking. So we're going to open up the Bible into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to kind of break apart some of the things that are, are said there from the apostle, uh, an apostle by the name of Paul to a church in Corinth. So we find ourselves reading someone else's mail, some encouragement from an apostle to a church that he helped to plant. And he's passing on some information, some encouragement of what they as a church ought to look like, the ways in which the gospel, the good news of Jesus, ought to begin to be displayed in the life of the church. So for the last few weeks, we've been walking through uh, a couple of different things. We've been looking at what we would say are the, we would call them our core values or our core convictions. What, what makes us who we are? What makes us the church that we feel called to be? What are the things that we see throughout the breadth of Scripture that, that we believe that we're going to hold on to tightly, such that if you find yourself going, well, I don't like that, then, then you're going to be frustrated always because these are the things that we believe the Bible calls us to be. And that's true whether you're a part of this church or not. We would say that even if you're not a part of this church, if this isn't the place, the, the group of people to which you belong, we would still say the Bible demands these things of you. And so we want to see these things played out obediently in the life of our church, but we also want to see this play out even in gospel-loving churches in our city and our region. We love these things, and the one true thing that we, we will find ourselves drawing our attention to every single week, every time we get together, is what we would call the gospel. That is the good news, the person and work of Jesus, the, the truth that the scripture teaches us about the nature and character of God and the nature and character of human beings, and how in their own sinfulness and brokenness they rebel against God and are separated from God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent His Son not to abandon that which was broken and rebelled against Him, but to identify with you and to me to take our place and, and give to us the blessings that He rightfully deserves and take the curses that we deserve took them such that now when we see this, our eyes are open to this. We receive by faith. We, our eyes are open to this good news and we're changed by it. We're transformed by it. We are compelled to believe it such that it now changes everything else that we see. This is, this is it. This is what we'll talk about. This is the thing, as I share with you, we're like, we're like a band that only plays one song. We, we talk about the person and work of Jesus all the time. It's what we sing about. It's what we pray about. It's why we even believe we can pray and be heard because we know that God through Jesus has drawn us into his presence such that now we can boldly approach his throne, not in fear like a slave, but like a son or a daughter can run into the throne room and jump on the king's lap. That's good news. That, that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Such that now this good news is too good to keep it a secret. And now we're on a mission such that now the image of God is being born throughout the entirety of the world by disciples of Jesus. The restored image that God had originally implanted into his people is evident when we are transformed by the good news of Jesus, such that now when people look at people changed by the gospel, they see the image of God through the saving work of Jesus. This is our mission. This is our purpose. We are a group of followers of Jesus that want to lead others to follow Jesus as well. 
We are disciples is the word we would use. We're believers in Jesus such that we call other people to this restoring work of Jesus. So if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe, maybe this is a, a new kind of thing for you, I, I want to I show you all our cards here. We, we want to compel you to believe that God is good. We believe that this good thing that Jesus has done for us demands a response. And so even if you're not a Christian, maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus, I, I'm so glad you're here because I want you to hear on its fullest merits what it is that we really believe and who it is now that Jesus has called us to be. We have a, an, an unwavering, we would say this, this value is simplicity, an unwavering focus on this gospel and this mission that we're now on in our city, such that now we can healthily and happily say no to other things if they distract from the main thing, which is the person and work of Jesus. This changes us, and now we have a heart of generosity. We have the heart of a servant, because now that Jesus has served us in a way that we could not serve ourselves, we see ourselves as servants in our city and our family and in the life of our church. And lastly, when this happens, as we zoom in on this, I want to cast for you maybe an aspirational goal, a way in which that now that Jesus has changed us, now that Jesus has done something for us, we are called not only to a mission and not only to be generous and not only to be servants, but we're called to look a certain way, to engage our culture and begin to reflect our community, the city, the context in which we now live. So beginning in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to read to you what now the gospel. You'll hear lots of language that I just spoke. Lots of things about that we as a church believe. You're going to see kind of come together here. You're going to be these, hear these words that I just spoke kind of culminate as we zoom in on this and, and begin to see exactly what it is that God has called us to be. You'll hear a lot of those words unoriginal with me beginning in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 9. But I have made no use of any of these rights. These rights Paul believes that he now has because he is going to plant churches, share the gospel, make disciples of Jesus. He, he, he could demand something in return, but he said, I haven't made any use of those rights, nor am I writing these things, this letter to this church, to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting." For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means 
I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. We believe this is more than just ink on a page, but it's the word of God for the people of God. May we have ears to hear it. Paul writes a letter to the church. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the second letter, 2 Corinthians, but this is the first letter that we have to the Corinthians. There might have been presumably one before, but this is the one that people died for and to preserve, and, and we have it here. And in this kind of culmination of all of these things that we've been talking about for the last five weeks, you caught it there, gospel being the center. Did you catch this? This is all for the sake of the gospel, such that now I can't not share the gospel. Did you get that? Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Shame on me if the gospel isn't the thing that I share. Such that now he's not simply hoarding things for himself, but instead he's generous. And even then, he's a servant. So I want you to get this, that what we've been walking through for the last couple of weeks is, as I hope, the most unoriginal thing possible. So as I've shared with you often, if you ever have any questions about some of the things we get to share together on a Sunday, if you have any questions, I would, I would love to share with you. I, my, the work I do in presenting and preaching on, on, a, given, on a given Sunday is, is extensively footnoted. So if you ever find yourself going like, well, where'd that come from? Or, or where's that from? I would love to, to put resources into your hands. I would love to, to spurn you on toward learning some of the things, understanding these things. I, if there's anything I can do to push that, I want to. Because I have no original ideas, no original thoughts. In fact, like the systematic theologian Thomas Oden said, we, as the church, have a radical loyalty to unoriginality. We don't want to stand out in, in our city because we've come up with something innovative, new, or creative. But instead, we stand out in our city because we're changed by something ancient and timeless. We're unoriginal. So I would love to share this with you. I mean, if there's any of these, you find yourself, well, where'd that come from? God has never entrusted me with an original idea or original thought. Um, I think he knows I would just try to profit from it. And so what I'm left with is to be a copycat. As one of my favorite British authors, uh, T.S. Eliot says, the, the worst of us would plagiarize, the best of us steal. Right? So the, the worst of us would pawn somebody else's work off as their own. The best of us just go, there's nothing new under the sun. That's also a very unoriginal thing to say. Nothing new under the sun, so we're just going to expose what is old. I, I want you to see that even in the last few weeks, the things we've been talking about, the gospel being at the center, right? The mission that now we're now on, compelled, it's too good to keep a secret. The, the simple way in which we devote ourselves to this above all else. The ways in which it begins to develop in us a sense of selfless generosity. And then the ways in which we're now servants as a result. These are radically unoriginal. They're deeply biblical. As you see here, they all kind of come together in the way that this mission plays out in our lives. So beginning in verse 15, let's just kind of walk through here. I want you to see what it is that God has called us to be and to do as a church. I want you to see that, that to, to call yourself a Christian begins to make some demands on you. You see, the followers of Jesus are called to an incar incarnational existence. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. We're now living on mission with Jesus in our families our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and our city. Now that God has redeemed us, now that He has restored us, He has taken that which is broken and marred by sin, 
and demonstrated for us the first fruits of his new creation, the image of Jesus being made manifest in the life of the church, we're on a mission to demonstrate to the world what God looks like. We're a redeemed people. This puts us on a mission. We're followers of Jesus. And in the same way that Jesus was incarnate, that is, he's the word made flesh, so also we are the work of God, the good news of God made visible in the life of the church. This is who we're called to be. Call ourselves a follower of Jesus. You're you're saying, I sign up for these things. I sign up to trust in Christ alone. I sign up to relinquish my identity in other things and to find it in Christ. I I sign up to to relinquish my desire to, to find approval and to find control and to find comfort anywhere else but in the work of Christ alone. Such that now it is the thing that is always coming out of me. Beginning in verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Now, to start there, we're kind of picking up in the middle of the chapter where, where Paul is saying that he was sent by other churches, he was sent by other people to go and to share the gospel. Now, side note here, this is something we believe in. This is something that, that we think is especially important, right? We, we want to go and share the gospel with people um, and not expect anything in return. Instead, we think it's for the glory of God, such that even now we, you, are, you, are, you are someone who has benefited from this as well. So we're here, um, and all the cool stuff that, that we get to use, the tools that God has given us, were given by someone other than you. Right? So we, uh, we have TVs and multi-track digital ability to record. and I mean, this is pretty awesome stuff, and you didn't buy any of it. Right? But this was instead other churches, other individuals who wanted to see the gospel go out. We believe in this. This is what we do. So much so that we shared in the week we talked about generosity. We as a church give away as much as we, we possibly can. We, we, as a church, whatever you give to this church, we want to be generous with and model that generosity. We'll give 10% of that to church planting and missionaries that we support around the world and across our continent. But even more than that, we, we give an additional 10% to church planting in our own region. An additional 5% on top of that to individual church plants or ministries and networks that plant churches and send missionaries around the world. So as best we can, we want to be as generous as possible. We don't, we don't demand that someone support this. We jump ahead and say we're going to be generous to this. Such that not one day, but right now, when you, when you give generously to the life of this church, you're helping plant a church in Sturgis, you're helping plant uh, a church in Lincoln, Nebraska, and, and, and indirectly supporting church plants around the world. We believe in this. And we don't show up and say, Jesus loves you, that'll be $20. Right? And Paul does the same. He comes and he shares the gospel, makes disciples, plants these churches, and doesn't demand anything in return. Instead, he's, he's going because someone else generously sent him. So instead of, he could, he says, look, look, I could, I just gave you the greatest news in the world. The gospel kind of demands that you, that, that you respond in some way. I could just say, hey, look, you're a disciple now, you owe me. But he says he doesn't do that. So he doesn't make use of the rights, and he's not writing to guilt people into this. But instead, he's drawing attention So the fact that in the verse first there, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What's his ground for boasting? In Christ alone, in the work of the gospel alone. So here he is saying, I'm here planting churches. We're here making disciples. We're going to be disciples that make disciples. We're going to do this at this particular time. We're spreading into, into Europe. It's crossed out of Asia. It's going into Europe and it's on its way to Rome by the time this letter would have been written. To where to the point now, we're here, what, 2,000 years later, uh, an ocean away talking about the same guy. 
Verse 16, he says, for if I do preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting. What does he mean by that? Because if you really draw attention to Christ, you'll find yourself in a position where you can't take credit for what happens. Like if you really are drawing attention to what God is doing, there's a sense in which you're left wondering who gets the credit. This is beautiful for us. This is, this is the fruit of being a, go- the phrase we will use, gospel-centered. If the gospel is what we preach, what we talk about, if we're drawing people to the person and work of Jesus, then at the end of the day, something miraculous will happen and we're left going like, well, I feel like we should thank somebody, but I don't know, I don't know who to thank. And in the end, it's the work of Christ, such that even Paul, who, if there were a man who could boast, this would be him, but he says, of all the things I could boast for, we see this in a couple other different places where he writes to the church, I could be boasting about these things, but I'm not. Instead, I'm just simply happy to share in the sufferings of Christ. I preach the gospel. It doesn't give me the ground for boasting. Why? Because necessity is laid upon me. So here's, you get that? Remember when we said that the gospel is our central focus, it puts us on a mission. You, you can't believe the gospel. You can't really believe that it's good news and keep it a secret. If you find yourself holding on to this good news, if you're afraid to share with someone the hope that now God has given you in Christ, then I would push back on you and say that you haven't really gotten that hope. If you're terrified of sharing the gospel, you don't really believe the gospel. We talk about this this, this way. When we think about the mission that we're on now to, to make disciples, if you had the cure for cancer, what would it say about you if you just hid it to yourself, right? Just, I've got the cure for cancer, but I'm not going to share it. What, what sinister and, and evil motivations are lurking in your own heart if, if you have this amazingly good news that could help and alleviate so much suffering and you, for some selfish reason, keep it? That's what he's getting at here. I, it's, it's a necessity. I have got to do this. If Jesus really does redeem, if he really has saved, then I can't keep it a secret. Verse The end of verse 16, now woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This we saw in the second week of this series. Woe to us. <laughs> If we don't make much of this. For if I do this of my own will, I'll have a reward, right? If I do it for my own glory, then I can pat myself on the back and congratulate myself for what happens. But instead, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. It's an important word. That stewardship implies that, that he doesn't own it. It's not his. He's just been entrusted with it. He's, he's, like, a, he's like a house sitter, or like a babysitter, or like a, a dog sitter. He's just holding in trust and caring for something that ultimately is the possession of someone else, namely Jesus. So what's my reward? Verse 18, that when I present the gospel free of charge, ultimately, I'll make, I'm not going to make full use of my right in the gospel. The reward then is that when he sees it, he's able to give freely this good news the way that God freely gave it to him. So now, as you, I hope you see kind of like recap the ways in which we've been walking through what I think is a biblical set of principles for us in the life of our church going forward. These are things we would say are, are some of them are convictional and that we won't waver on them, but here's where some of them are aspirational. Some of them are things that we desire to be. There's this weight that now the gospel has on us that calls us to something more than what we are. You see, God loves you just as you are but he loves you too much to leave you there. Like, Christ loves you where you are. This is true, but he never leaves anyone where they are. And so this call of the gospel moves us in a particular direction, and here's what it looks like beginning in verse 19. 
He says, for though I am free of all, I'm free from all, I have made myself, remember this was last week, a what? A servant of all. I don't owe anyone anything. God has given me the immeasurable riches in Christ Jesus. But what does he say? Because that, I could do whatever I want, but instead I choose to look like Christ and be a servant, to take the place of a servant in the same way that Jesus took the place of a servant. Even being in the likeness of God, he did not see equality as something with uh, equality with God is something to be grasped, but he lowered himself, emptied himself was the word we saw last week, into the form of a servant, taking our place and dying. Not just dying, but dying on an old, rugged cross. So this is what we begin to look like. We begin to engage, because of this gospel, in a particular way. We don't owe anything to our city, but God is doing something. I have made myself a servant to all. For what purpose, you might ask? Why would we lower ourselves? It says it right there, that I might win more of them. God is restoring the brokenness in creation. He is restoring a new creation through the image of Christ. And when people's eyes are open to this, Paul calls that a win. That's a win. Colossians says that when the gospel transforms us, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. The book of Acts refers to it as being saved. Saved. As if something bad was about to happen. Something something on its way was destructive. And now that thing has been averted. It's a win. This is our win. I, I got to, to kind of laugh at this. When this starts to, to change you, it, it'll really mess you up. I, I, I usually, on a weekly basis, listen to my own sermons for the purpose of criticism and mostly because when I typically share something with you, it, someone should repeat it back to me and I have to make myself do that and, and I listen to it. I, I noticed something. We had, we had baptisms last week and, uh, and that got me amped such that uh, I, I spoke like the micro-machine man in the sermon. It, this, this is a win, this gets us jacked up. This fires us up. This ought to visibly make us excited. This ought to amp us up to see people, if we really believe this, right? We believe that they were once in darkness and now they're in the presence of Christ, right? They were, they were once in peril on their way to an eternal condemnation and now they're sons and daughters of the Most High God, right? There once was a loss and that great loss was an eternal loss that now by Jesus Christ is a win. This is who we are. How do we do this? Verse 20 tells us this. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, namely these are people who lived by believing that their righteousness came through religious views and religious practices. I became like them, compelled them that I might win them. Those outside the law, I became like them, not to the point where I abandoned to just catch that outside of God's law, but I was still under the law of Christ. I became with them, compelled them to win them. Those who are weak, I compel them to win them. I become all of these things to all the people. Why? So that I might save some. Now, he doesn't mean like he's going to go die on the cross and take the place of Jesus. It's not what he means. But in some miraculous, again, incarnational way, in the same way that now the, the body of Christ has been broken 
for the salvation of the world, the body of Christ, the church, now exists for its salvation as well. And the task of saving the world that Jesus accomplished has now been passed on by the power of the Holy Spirit to the body, the namely the church, in the world. Why? Why would we do this? It begins us, takes us all the way back to six weeks ago. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I, I do it all because this news is too good to keep it a secret. I want to share with them, I want to be a part of the blessing that happens when people open their eyes to see the truth of God's love in Jesus. I want to share in that blessing. So he gives us a compelling way of living. Now that if the gospel is at the center, if, the, if what we do now is, is ultimately based on God being primary, this will play out in a certain number of ways. So the church is not to withdraw from the culture but instead to be a transforming influence in culture for the glory of God. So he gives a list of different categories of people. Categories of people, mind you, that, that probably didn't like one another and he had the right to stay away from. Categories of people that he could have happily kind of, kind of ignored. But instead of ignoring them and disengaging, he engages them with the gospel. He sees the people around them. As we saw last week, he sees the need and he goes there to declare the gospel. So when we know that God is primary, when we know that the foundational reality of the universe is God and God alone, then what he's done for us, namely the gospel, changes everything. The byproduct of that is the church and a specific type of church, a church that now exists for mission, not for comfort. We believe that the comfort that we want only comes from Christ. And now that the structure of our church submits to the work of the Spirit in this, then we look a certain way in our culture. We engage it. We, just like Christ, who stepped into the mire, also step out of our comfort zone, begin to live on a mission. We don't withdraw. We engage. Well, that's a word I use a lot, but let me define it for you. The word engage is kind of a strange word. It simply means to occupy the attention or efforts of someone. So if I'm engaging you, I'm occupying your attention. You secure an aid or an employment. You, to engage with someone is to, is to attract and to hold fast. Now, obviously, in the strongest sense in which we use this word, you, you ought to begin to see the parallels. We engage in sharing the gospel. We engage our culture in a very similar extent to which two single people become engaged to be married. We betrothed. We are, we are called to these people. We don't get to choose if we will share the gospel to our family, neighbors, and city. We don't get to choose. We have been betrothed, sent Ecclesia, the word for church that's been kind of perverted into something that resorts, you know, we now we're just something like a building. That calling out is a commitment that God has made to the lost people in our lives. We don't get to choose. So the way that we talk about this, you'll hear me say there's a phrase in the last couple decades in the life of the church that's gotten kind of popular, the phrase missional church. You heard this? We're going to be a missional church. That's a really helpful thing because it's kind of it's kind of begun to, I hope, reclaim and renew and reform a place where the church is often complacent and often can be self-centered in its own city. But the phrase missional church is tricky. It's, it's a redundancy. It's like, it's like the word or the phrase floating boat, 
right? Like, I have a floating boat. Well, to be fair, if it does not float, it's not a boat, right? The same thing is true of the church. You can't be necessarily a missional Christian in the sense that you can be a Christian without being missional. If you're not on that mission, you're not a Christian. If you're not eagerly sharing this gospel, then you need to hear this gospel. This needs to change you. If you don't see the world around you as currently without hope, and you have the good news of God's hope, then, friend, I want to encourage you. I, I heard for you. You right now don't believe that there is a hope. And I'm so glad you're here because woe to me if I don't take this opportunity to tell you how good and merciful God is. Woe to me if I don't take this opportunity and point you toward the love and care of Jesus Christ. Woe to us if that isn't what we sing about, talk about, pray about. We engage this, and I'm so glad you're here because I want you to hear that God has made a way for you The things that you've done, he has outdone. Whether what you've done is awful or what you have done you believe is righteous, he has outdone you in Jesus Christ. Such that now there is nothing you or I can do that's greater than what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That's a gift. It's a gift that we receive by faith. This is now who we are. We engage our culture. We don't hide from it. We're prone to divide. If the goal is to make disciples in Sioux Falls, then, then we have to recognize we're prone to hide. You, you notice here that Paul, throughout this text, had an opportunity to kind of seize his own rights, to take his own right of way. But he relinquishes his rights for the sake of something greater. He relinquishes what he ultimately deserves for the sake of giving something to people that is a gift. Mark chapter 2 puts it this way. Jesus was reclining with some people. It says on a regular basis. You see this throughout the Gospel of Luke as well. Verse 15 of Mark chapter 2. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, there were many tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw this, that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus actively crosses the barrier. He could stay on the righteous side, but he relinquishes his rights to be on the righteous side, to be with and identify with those who are sinners. This is good news, such that now we're compelled to, to do the same thing. So here's where I have to speak to those of you who are highly religious, okay? Deep down inside, you think that the purpose of the church is to like cloister yourself and cut off people who are not Christian. And you like stuff, I know, you really like stuff where a bunch of Christians are there. You really like the comfort that it gives you. I I like it too. But just know That's only one ingredient in the life of the faith. And if we love it and worship it, it becomes a hindrance to what God has called us to be in our city. 
We engage the culture. We don't hide. We do like Jesus. We identify with those not like ourselves. Just like the disciples, we can look around and we can see a certain, cult, certain cultural indicators that are going in an unhealthy and ungodly direction. We can look around and see something is broken. Paul identified a bunch of people that needed something, apparently. They were, they were losing in some way, and they had to be won. He looked and he saw that the Jews were, were somehow distant from God. They didn't know the good news of Jesus. Apparently, there's some under the law that didn't know that their obedience to the law wasn't what made them right before God, but instead it was the work of Jesus. There were apparently some people who were not under the law. That is, they were probably pagan or secular or, or Gentiles is the word that we'll use in the New Testament. Anyone who's not a religious observant Jew. And Paul says, I'm going to hang out with those people. I'm going to compel those people as well to win them over. To those that are weak, I'm going to bear with them and win them as well. All the people, all the people that I see, I want to see by some means, any means, the gospel begin to save them. So we don't disengage from the culture, we engage the culture. And like the disciples, we look around us and we see needs. We see people who are without hope. This is the beauty. Even on a Sunday morning, we look around this room and we, we can see it, right? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what your week was like, right? It's an interesting week, to say the least. And regardless, there's, there's probably a sense of uncertainty about the future. Like, what, what's about to happen? Don't know. And there's a sense in which we all wear that when we even come in this room and yet we decide to remind one another there is hope. I, I, know, I know you're upset. I, I know you're worried. I, I know there's something going on. I know there are things that, that rob you of your peace. And I want to tell you there's hope, and, and Christ is that hope. I want to draw your attention to that. And as we look around, we see the exact same thing. We aspire to be this kind of a people. We now live as agents of gospel transformation and renewal in a time when it's so desperately needed. You've been entrusted with the good news. So our goal isn't to draw attention to anything else but Christ. This is it. This is what we're called to do. And we want to see that happen in every possible segment of our city. Now, this is a long-term kind of a thing. The, the, the kinds of convictions we have now won't maybe not play out for another couple of decades. But we desire that as God puts this thing together called Connection Church, we recognize it will start to look vastly different. It will begin to look more and more like our city. And the extent to which our city looks similar or different is the same way as we're called to win people across every segment of our city, we will as well. So this means that we're never going to be just a segment. The byproduct of focusing on the gospel is that we engage our context. Even since the beginning of the church, divisions and groupings based on ethnicity, their former religion, their past, their social status, all of these things began to start to be a part of the church. But Jesus, in his prayer for his disciples in John chapter 17, prayed that his followers would love one another such that they would be one. They would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. We're prone to divide. Let's be honest. If we get right down to it, 
when we think about the people we really want to hang out with, we think of the image in the mirror. And if you look around you and you find yourself only surrounded by people who look, talk, think, and act like you, you don't love Jesus, you love you. And you are trying as hard as you can, as hard as you can to reinforce how awesome you are by surrounding people, yourself with people who look like you. This is a problem because this distorts Christ. This distorts what Christ looks like. This is especially important. Christ should have only hung out with God and the Holy Spirit. Christ should have only hung out with perfect and righteous beings. But Christ relinquished that right to appeal to and live amongst us. And now so do we. Matthew 5 says it this way. You've heard it say, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Galatians 3 puts it this way, that now, since our identity is in Christ, we are now sons and daughters of God through faith. And as many of you as were baptized into Christ have now put on Christ. Now that you've put on Christ, and Christ is what people see, then there's no Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ, then you are heirs according to God's promise. This is who we are. A biblically faithful church in Singapore will look different than a biblically faithful church in Saskatchewan. And those will look different than a biblically faithful church in Sioux Falls. This won't always be comfortable. This means that people who disagree with you will always be in proximity to you. This means that we engage the differences. And just like the disciples, and we see indicators of division, we now respond as agents of gospel transformation. Thus, we need to know our culture and context. We need to engage it well. We need to live for Christ and subvert the brokenness around us. And we need to do it in culturally relevant ways. So th this is what I know. This is where I land this plane. And, uh, and this is where, I, I'm not sure where I would have gone anyway. Um, I have some things that are, that are important, but, but the events of this last week kind of demand a response. When I talk about crossing barriers with people you disagree with for the sake of winning them to Christ, this all of a sudden, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think that one through, but this all of a sudden became a fairly relevant and pertinent topic due to the events of the last week. Because if there's one thing I do know, that we are living in a context that's deeply divided, deeply polarized across most topics. And here's where I get to talk to you and say, look, I love you. I don't know who you voted for. In fact, if I know the stats right, I think like 62% of you didn't vote, Right? And here's what, I love you anyway. I, I, I care for you. I want to draw your attention to your hope in Christ. And even though we may disagree politically, I love you anyway enough to say that Christ is our all in all. If you just kind of look some of the stats, this is, this is a really interesting place that we're now occupying, isn't it? We're living in a place, a culture that is deeply divided. Now, I don't necessarily care to, like, get everybody around a political cause. That isn't my cause at all. However, what I do want you to see, this is our context. 
this will be a barrier to the gospel, won't it? If we live in a culture that's deeply divided, this will be an obstacle we have to be extra sensitive to if we're going to be heard when we tell people there's a hope in Jesus. This, we have to be so aware of this. This would be something that we're, we're highly sensitive to, and we see the implications of some of these things. We have to admit the differences and then choose to love Jesus first. In fact, there's actually nothing more dangerous in the world than someone who has a loyalty with other people other than the gospel, but they call themselves the church. Make sure you get that. There's nothing more dangerous than a bunch of people who really love themselves and have a loyalty towards something other than the gospel, but they call themselves the church. It obscures the gospel. It tells people that looking like them is more important than being conformed to the image of Christ. And there's nothing more dangerous. So if comfort's your idol, then you'll only surround yourself with people who look, talk, think, and act like you. And the idol that you'll sacrifice to, sing to, will be you. But if the God we worship is Jesus, then that means that we'll draw as many people, as many categories, to Jesus. We don't desire to be a white church. We don't desire to be a black church. Hear this one. We don't desire to be a young church. We don't desire to be an old church. We desire to be a church in Sioux Falls. We desire to have the marks of gospel transformation in a city that is hungry for hope. It's clamoring for things that they, that our city is clamoring for things that, want to, that they want to satisfy themselves with. But here's what I know. If you don't love those people, you don't care about them, you'll be failing and disobeying Jesus' command to love even your enemy, and you will obscure the picture of Jesus. So if you don't know and love a Democrat, you will have no idea what Democrats are upset about. And you'll have no ability to relate to them, hurt with them, share the gospel with them. If you don't know and love a Republican, then you have no idea, no idea what they're upset about. And if you don't bear with them, love them, have proximity with them, you won't care about them and you won't be able to share the gospel with them. And we're called to be all things to all people. You see, what's happened in the last week is this. I, I, don't, I don't know much. I'm not a political pundit or a political analyst. But I can look at the major parties and say they've kind of possibly relinquished their loyalties to some biblical principles. Oh, I don't know. Things like thou shalt not lie. I could just, just start in small, right? Okay. <laughs> I think they've probably, I think the major political parties and, and their representatives have probably relinquished their loyalty to some biblical principles for the sake of political gain. Right? They've, they've kind of sacrificed some things that the Bible teaches that we, that human beings ought to look like in the world. They've sacrificed that for the sake of winning a political office. Do you agree? And this is interesting because we're actually called to relinquish our political affiliations for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. And this will make you stand out in our culture right now. You, when, when everyone else is angry one side or the other, you will look like a freak. You will look like a strange, lost soul. The Bible will say you'll look You'll look like a resident alien. You'll look like you don't belong here. When all the while, sides are clamoring 
in fear, gloating or lamenting when you come in and say, hey, tell, tell me about what's going on. Help me love you and know your side. We relinquish our horizontal affinities, whether they're racial, whether they're economic, you name it, in favor of our vertical affinity, now with God and Jesus Christ. Let me land on this. Uh, in all of the synoptic gospels, we have a list of the 12 apostles. And there's often, sometimes when there are lists, whether you're reading you know, Leviticus or Chronicles, you kind, of, you kind of zone out, right? We saw last Christmas how the, even the list of the, the genealogy of Jesus is a demonstration of the gospel, that God uses some pretty crazy people uh, to save the world, right? P- pretty amazing. And sometimes the list reveals the gospel. And I want you to do this. If you want to Google the disciples, some of you I know you're raised in, in a context where you probably have them memorized, right? And in that list, there's two people, and they have labels. There's Matthew, who wrote the gospel according to Matthew, who is a tax collector. And then there's a guy by the name of Simon, not Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot. Now, I got I to unpack those terms for you so you can see what this will start to look like in our midst. The tax collector, Matthew. This is the most corrupt person you know. This is the person who has sold his soul, sold his loyalty to people for the sake of his own personal financial gain. This is the person who jumps into a relationship with the empire. The Romans, taking over these people, uh, begin to demand taxes of them. And then they said that we're going to have conscripts, people who are going to collect those taxes and let them live off of that. Okay? So, so Matthew betrayed his people. He probably betrayed his own conscience in order to identify with the most corrupt individuals. Right? This, this is Matthew the tax collector, all about massive corrupt government. Get it? Highly corrupt. And then there's this guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. I don't know if you know what a zealot is. Zealot were the, were the group of people that jumped in with a, a couple different key guys that, that led revolts against the Romans. These are the guys that said that there's no rule but, but the ones that they believe God has given them. And so they actually revolted and many of them were killed. And they tried to rebel and overthrow the government. This is the anarchy. This is the guy that says you're the oppressor. This is the liberation perspective. This is the get out of here. We, 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 we don't want you around here. All you do is oppress. You get this? There's, there's kind of this authoritarian side, right? That sides with corrupt empire. Sides with corrupt human authority. Highly authoritarian. And then there's this other side that's revolutionary. That says our rights, our individual perspectives, our, our ability to govern ourselves is what's most important. Did you get this? This is the highly authoritarian big government, right? This is the throw off the government. You're oppressing us. And they're both disciples of Jesus. They both throw off their old lives and their old affiliations for the joy that comes in following Jesus. They throw off their previous loyalties for the sake of the hope that comes in identifying with Jesus. How I wish the same could be said of me. How I wish the same will be said 
of us. Let's pray for just that. God, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We thank you that whether it's Simon or Matthew, you have called people You have called people full of idols uh, to love and cherish you. And we recognize that that is in our natural tendency, that is in our natural inclination. God, if I were to be honest, I would would like for the people around me to just look like me and talk like me and agree with me. Uh, I'd love for them to just affirm everything I say. But God, I know that would obscure the glory that belongs to you alone. God, if this, uh, if this last couple of weeks or months has caused us to maybe say or do something uh, that might have hindered our ability to love and share the gospel, uh, would, you, would you begin to expose that in us? We're, 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 in, we're in uncertain times. Um, we're, in a, we're in a spot that, that's going to be complex. So if there's, if there's a moment in our, own, in our own influence in the last few weeks or months or years or even in the, in the weeks to come where we've maybe thought a certain way politically or we've exposed something politically, where we've said something politically that might have hindered our ability to share the gospel, would you, would you help us to, to see that, to confess it, maybe revisit that? If there's a way in which maybe we've allow that identity to even affect the way that we judge and view others. If there's a way that our own political affiliation has is hindered our ability to be compassionate and loving and caring to people, would you begin to convict us of that? Uh, would you remind us that you're, you are in control, you are sovereign. Uh, this, this seesaw back and forth of human power is nothing new. There's nothing new. It's happened since the Romans, since the beginning of civilization. God, when Cain kills Abel, he, he sets the stage for the way we see human victory and human winning and human losing. Would you begin to show us the ways that that kind of loyalty will hinder us from having hope and joy in you? God, I thank you. I thank you that you love us. There are people in this room uh, that are Democrat, that are Republican. There are people in this room that... <laughs> that have all sorts of affinities. They have, uh, there are people in this room, homeschooled, public schooled, private schooled. There, there are people in this room across all sorts of precarious places in our culture, places where our culture insists that there are winners and losers and you have to pick a side and fight to the death. Would you begin to shape us in such a way that now we see the gospel as our true identity, we see Jesus as our one true hope, and we begin to live that out in our sphere of influence? begin to shape us by this good news in such a way that it's evident to everyone who sees us. May may, may we begin to look like aliens and people that don't belong here because we love Jesus more than we love anything else. Stir that up in us by the power of the gospel. Only you can do this, Spirit. Spirit of God, thank you. Amen.